Welcome to the School for Good Living podcast. I'm your host, Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this podcast to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. Most of my guests are authors, and in each episode, I explore their life journeys and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read so that you can use these same strategies and tactics too. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Hello, my friends. Brian here. Welcome to the School for Good Living podcast. In this episode, the inaugural episode, I talk with Lynn Twist. For more than 40 years, Lynn has been recognized as a global visionary who's committed to alleviating poverty, ending world hunger, and supporting social justice and environmental sustainability. From working with Mother Teresa in Calcutta to the refugee camps in Ethiopia and the threatened rainforests of the Amazon, as well as guiding the philanthropy of some of the world's wealthiest families, Lynn's on-the-ground work has brought her a deep understanding of people's relationship with money. Her breadth of knowledge and experience has led her to profound insights about the social tapestry of the world and the historical landscape of times we're living in. Lynn is also author of The Soul of Money, Transforming Your Relationship with Money and Life. That's Lynn's bio on her website, but I want to tell you about Lynn from my personal experience. I journeyed to the Amazon rainforest with Lynn and with my wife and her husband, Bill, and a group of other adventurous souls a couple years ago, and it changed who I am. I've since gone back. I've stayed a part of the Pachamama Alliance, the organization that Lynn has started. And in this conversation, we talk about the Pachamama Alliance, what inspired her to start it more than 20 years ago, and also about the humanitarian and philanthropic work that she's done around the world, what it means to live a committed life. You'll hear Lynn talks about not striving for balance, but striving for integrity, really incredible perspective, some of what she shares about money, some of the views that she has going beyond the idea of scarcity. Oprah has had her on her show. She's counseled U.S. presidents. She is truly a leader, and it's my great privilege to share with you this conversation now. So I hope you enjoy, and I hope that if you don't already know Lynn, that by knowing her, uh, she'll bless your life in similar ways to the way she's blessed mine. Well, thank you so much. I'm so excited to have you as the first guest of a podcast that that I'm creating. Thank you so much for having me. Let me just say that first. It's a delight and an honor to be the inaugural speaker. And thank you for thinking of me, including me, and having me uh, launch this whole thing. Well, thanks. So in just a moment, we'll talk a little bit about your background and, and the work you do. But before we get to that, let's start with uh, the simple question of what's life about? What's life about? That's such a broad question that you could answer it in many ways, but I'll just say what my life is about, because that's how I can narrow it a little bit and at least speak from my own truth. I think life is about making a difference, making a contribution, um, <clears throat> that life is given to us, that it's a gift, and that uh, it's a privilege to be alive. So that gift, that blessing is there to uh, have the opportunity to bless the world in some way with your life. And so when we're in touch with that, uh, life really sings, life really soars. And so that's what my life is about. And I, I invite other people to see it that way because I know it really works. Yeah, it's, it's so beautiful. 
And I can tell by having spent time with you over the last few years that those aren't just words that you speak, but uh, truths that you live. That's very beautiful. When somebody asks you who you are and what you do, what do you tell them? Well, it also sort of depends on who's asking me because I have a commitment to speak in a way that honors and respects and speaks into the listening that I'm afforded. So if it's a child who asks me that, I, I, uh, I answer in a different way than an elder or a, a someone who's a media person. But if it's just you right now, and I know others are listening, um, you know and I know that one of the things I do is, uh, is share my life story with people through my book, The Soul of Money, um, also through talks that I give, through workshops I deliver, through programs I deliver through the Soul of Money Institute. And um, I also am someone who is c- deeply committed to um, bringing forth an environmentally sustainable, spiritually fulfilling, socially just human presence on this planet through the work of the Pachamama Alliance. I'm a mother, I'm a grandmother, I'm a wife, I'm a daughter, I'm a sister. Um, and for me, the privilege of being alive and being able to connect with both people I'm related to and people I'm not related to um, through the gift of speaking and listening um, is who I am and what I do. Oh, so beautiful. Well, and I know much of that work you carry out through your Soul of Money Institute, and you mentioned the Pachamama Alliance. I know you work with the Nobel Women's Initiative. You travel, speak, coaching, the consulting you do, recently been on Oprah. How do you manage to balance all of that and still make time for yourself, your health, your family? Well, that's a wonderful question. I ask myself that question all the time. So that's a daily challenge, I'll say, just to be really, really forthright and honest and transparent. Um, I have such big commitments and I love them. Uh, and I'm totally committed to my family as well and my own health and well-being. And I'll just tell you a little story in answer to that question. I was once invited to be on the cover of a magazine, a women's magazine called Balance. And they wanted me on the cover and they wanted me to write or they wanted me to be interviewed for the lead article. And I remember when the editor called me and said, we want to feature you in this, this magazine. This was right after The Soul of Money came out, my book. I said, oh, my God, I think you have the wrong person. I, I, I just don't think I can relate to the word balance. I, I have never uh, experienced it. I'm, um, I'm a thousand percent player. Um, and I'm actually, I'm not even quite interested in balance. And I don't want to insult your magazine, but I don't seek balance. Um, I actually seek integrity. Hmm. And that's different for me. So if I need to stay up all night to finish a, a task uh, and then go to my daughter's um, grandparents' day for her children, I will do that. Um, if I need to do something extraordinary to keep my word with the Nobel Women's Initiative, um, like fly all night to Bangladesh to be there for an emergency, I will do that if I've given my word. So no one would look at my life and call it balanced, but they would call it um, a life of joy and happiness and full out participation and full self-expression. And to me, that is uh, the commitment I have. Uh, and as I say, what I seek is integrity, being whole, uh, keeping my word, um, being a, someone who lives a committed life and can be counted on. 
And often that might look like someone who's totally out of balance. But for me, uh, that's just not the experience. So I think balance is great. It's just not my um, my word or what I seek. Yeah. At the same time, I must say, raising a family and being a full-on pro-activist, which is really who I am, a pro-activist, someone who's an activist for, not against. It's a beautiful distinction, by the way. Yeah, I, I, I used to call myself an activist. Then I realized, no, I'm a pro-activist, a global pro-activist an activist for, not against, and not a naive pro-activist. I know what's in the way of the vision that we all hold. Mm -hmm. I'm not afraid to address it, but I don't focus on what's in the way or what's wrong. I focus on the vision and what's working. So anyway, that is, um, it's challenging being a, a global pro-activist and raising a family and now having grandchildren. At the same time, I've found that uh, somehow when I'm telling the truth, when I'm in my dharma, when I'm um, when I'm have integrity, it all works, and that's really the answer to your question. Well, what an interesting perspective to seek integrity over balance. <laughs> that's I've, I've never heard that before, but thank you for sharing that. So the next few questions I have are about your book, The Soul of Money. For a book to be in demand in in print, you know, purchased, talked about, read for so many years. Um, it's, it's obviously got to do something for people. And I'm curious, who did you write this book for? Who were those people? And what did you want it to do for them? And what is it doing for them? It's interesting. I love your question. And I don't know that I wrote it for anyone in particular when I wrote it. I now see that it is for a certain kind of person. But when I wrote it, what really inspired it is that I've been given such an amazing life. I I call myself a person living a committed life where my commitments guide me, my commitments get me up in the morning, my big giant commitments um, and my desires uh, have fallen in the background. I don't even know kind of what I want. I just know what I'm committed to. How did you learn that? Where did you learn this, um, this concept of living a committed life? Well, uh, I think one of the biggest things for me was the Landmark Forum. When I took it, it was the EST training. Everybody, um, I think, when they find their way, you know, they either get it through meditation or a guru or maybe a Christian upbringing or maybe a, a moment of, um, of revelation. For me, this, this you know, two-weekend training in the early 70s called the EST training just totally woke me up. I mean, it was... It was a miracle for me. Why did you take it? Like what motivated you to sign up for such a life-changing seminar? <laughs> well, I, it was inconvenient. I had little kids at the time. They were, I think, two, four, and six, or three, five, and seven, very, maybe even younger than that. And um, uh, my friend Sandy, Sandy uh, and I knew each other for many years, and I saw her at a party. I hadn't seen her in a couple of months. I looked at her and she was practically glowing. Wow. She was radiant. She was, her vitality was just like jumping out of her body. She had lost weight. She, her eyes were so bright. And I went over to her, saw her across the room. And I thought, I said, Sandy, what happened to you? I can feel something's occurred. You not only lost weights, so that's so obvious, but, but what, something else is going on. She said, well, I took this amazing thing called the S training. I can't explain it. There were 250 people in a room and one guy, one person called the trainer. And I, I can't even explain it to you, but I came out of it. 
I feel completely transformed. And there's a, an event next week, and I'd be happy to take you, and you can learn more yourself. I knew after I had that conversation with her, I was going to do this thing, whatever the heck it was. And then, of course, I went to an event and signed up, and Bill signed up too, my husband. But he was suspicious, and what are we talking about? And we don't want to do this thing, and this is crazy. And that was kind of his a little bit skeptical attitude, but he signed up. And then when it came right down to it, he he said, you do it first. <laughs> so you didn't do it together. <laughs> yeah, so that's kind of the way we do it. I did it first. I took the big plunge, and I came back so fired up, so in touch with who I am, so freed up from baggage I didn't even know I had from my childhood, you know, things that are just kind of cleared up, as they say in the S training, or this is one of the phrases they used, in the process of life itself. Hmm. And he he observed me, I mean, uh, married to me and, you know, knew me very, very well. And after I came back, the way I was, was so, I was so much freer, so much happier, so much easier to get along with, so much less burdened. Not that I was burdened before. I didn't even know I was. Lynn, what did you, if you, if you're willing to share, what did you let go of? I mean, you talk about being freer, but what, what was it that uh, you let go of that made you lighter? Um, well, I, I, that requires a little bit of a story, if, if I can tell you a story. Is that okay? If you're willing, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Okay. So um, so I took the S training in January of 1974, and my children were, if I've got this right, one, three, and five. So I had little kids. And my husband, Bill, was a very, very successful, he had, had gotten his MBA, and he had gotten hired by a a big company, and, and he was starting to make a lot of money. And um, I was a little bit uh, tied down with three little kids. I was um, trying to keep up with the Joneses, if I can use that phrase. Everybody that in his firm was, they were starting to be paid really, really well. They were closing these gigantic deals. We thought we were supposed to you know, start collecting art and understand French wine and, and, and drive around in a certain kind of car. I mean, we really got caught in the, uh, you, we were, at that time, they used this term yuppies, you know, just uh, the up and coming new wealth. And I was very uncomfortable with that, uh, but didn't know I was uncomfortable with that, let's say. I was sort of like just trying to be pretty and thin and smart and, you know, be the perfect, being able to do gourmet yeah. dinners and understand why, I, you know, I was, I was kind of like on a track that was inauthentic like, is like the word I would use now. It. I was totally mm -hmm. caught up in it. And, um, I, in the S training, the, one of the things that I let go of is all of that and how I let go of it. I can't explain because the S training for me was, was miraculous and almost magical, but there was a whole a chain of uh, of shame and regret, you could say, that I had around my own father, who died when I was twelve. And the story is this: uh, I'll give you my short version. I um, I'm a musician. I've been a musician all my life. My father was a very very fine musician. My grandmother was an opera singer. My father was an orchestra leader and had a and he was a pianist and he 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 was a fabulous musician. And of the four children, I'm the third in four kids. I was the one who was going to be a great musician, too. Um, everybody had to play the piano. Everybody had to take ballet. Everybody had to take tap. You know, we all we all had to do all that stuff because that was our world, But uh, and singing lessons and everything. But I was the one 
according to my dad and mom, who had the real talent, or that was, they didn't say it that way, but that was the uh-huh. burden I, I carried. And I had a, I had a, a, a real affinity for the piano, and I had a, a piano teacher who was quite strict named Mrs. Block. She was kind of old and smelly, to tell you the honest God truth. And I was supposed to practice my piano, my scales, my Mozart, my all that stuff, uh, a certain number of um, minutes or hours every day. I can't remember now. And um, my dad was away, and I stopped practicing. I just sort of went on a little bit of a hiatus. There was too many things to do. It was too much fun, this thing and that thing and my friends. And I stopped practicing for a week. And when Mrs. Block came, and she came every Thursday, Thursday morning at 7.30 a.m. before school, I um, I did something that was very sneaky. Um, I had an assignment notebook that she always wrote in in pencil, and it would say uh, Bach, page, page four and five in pencil, and it would say uh, Canon, page seven and eight, scales D and C, and she always wrote in pencil. And I... One week when I didn't practice, I erased Bach page four and five, and I put page um, two and three, which I had played the week before, and I knew. And I erased, you know, Mozart, whatever it was, page seven and eight, and put five and six. And I erased the scale D and F and put the scales that I'd played the week before. And I very carefully erased it and copied her handwriting and and repeated the, the week the week's lesson from before because she, you know, was kind of an old lady and she wouldn't see very sneaky and (laughs) then very sneaky. And, and so when she played, I, when she came, I played very skillfully the, the same stuff I'd played the week before and she didn't even notice. So the next week I started getting nervous on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, realizing I didn't practice again Mm. and I did it again. And then I did it again. I, I don't know how many weeks I did it, but I did it for so long. I mean, it might have been three weeks. It might have been four. It might have been six. That I got so good at Bach, page, page three and four, you know, Mozart, page six and seven, because I played the same thing every week for her. And she praised me and told my father I was doing so well. Mm. And then he died. Now, you would think that has nothing to do with that. But as a little girl, now I wasn't that little, I was 12. He died the day before my birthday. He died in his sleep in the middle of the night from a heart attack. He was 50 years old. We had no clue he was at all, he wasn't unhealthy, none of that. But I had wow. lied really to my father. Um, and when he died, I didn't, I never knew this until the EST training I thought it was my fault, and I had a deep scar on my heart for all the years from age 12 until age 29 when I took the S training, wow. that I had somehow killed my father by lying, by lack of integrity, by not practicing the piano. Now, that's silly, and everybody knows that's not true, but I did not even know that this was inside my little you know, 12-year-old heart and that it festered in there uh, and made me un unworthy as a human being um, until I took the S training when I freed myself and let go of the shame, the regret, the lying, the lack of integrity, and really disaggregated that set of actions from the death of my own father. So that's the big, big, big thing that happened for me in the S training. And out of that freedom, 
a, a burst of happiness and joy and um, and sense of self worth and self esteem just burst into my life. Um, so that's sorry for the long story, but that's actually the answer oh, to your question. So we got on that topic as I was asking you who you wrote the book for and what you wanted it to do for them. And I think you mentioned that when you wrote it, you didn't necessarily know who you were writing it for, but what did you want the book to do? How did you want the world to be different as a result of writing The Soul of Money? Well, I carried around a, a, a sense of responsibility that I'll, that I'll share because this is really why I wrote it. I realized that I had, out of living a committed life, which I spoke about just a few minutes ago, I had ended up working with Mother Teresa in India. I had ended up being in Ethiopia after the 1984-1985 famine with people who lost every child to the starvation. I had been in war zones and seen people come out of war with resilience and love and compassion for one another. I'd been in truth and reconciliation commissions. I had met Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela. I mean, I had had a life that you could not plan. And... Um, I realized that this life wasn't for me. This life is a life that I am a conduit for sharing. These lessons that I learned from fundraising and philanthropy, particularly about money, working with some of the most resource poor people on earth and some of the most resource rich people on earth as a fundraiser and someone working to end world hunger, were lessons that were so unique um, that I was carrying wisdom that was much more than my years and wisdom that I'm sure wasn't just given to me for me. It was given to me for me to share. And I got that because I was making a, a speech at the State of the World Forum, which was a big meeting um, convened by President Gorbachev. And all the great leaders of the world were there, a thousand leaders. You know, Jane Goodall was there. Carl Sagan was there. Desmond Tutu was there. George Bush was there. George Schultz, uh, Gorbachev, all the great people. This is 1995. And uh, I, made, I, I gave a speech there um, about the soul of money. It was my first real public expression of what I'd learned about money through, through my work with Mother Teresa and working with resource-poor people in, in Ethiopia and Bangladesh. And it, I got a huge, and I was a young, kind of like not well-known compared to the other people there. And I got this huge standing ovation. And it was like, shocking to me. Um, I was scared to death before I made this talk. And so at the end of the standing ovation, you know, I got off the stage and people, how they do, want to talk to the speaker. And three different literary agents uh, said, you need to write a book about what you just said. Three different literary agents. And there were like 20 people who talked to me or 30, I don't know. And I, it, it just sort of stunned me. And I said, I can't write a book. I'm, I'm working on ending world hunger. I don't have the time to do that. So I just ignored it and considered it a, a, a lovely compliment. But then um, more and more people, it was almost like a stream of people, no matter where I went, no matter what I did, they started saying, you should write a book. And I started feeling like, oh my God, I don't know how to write a book. I'm not an author. I'm an activist. I'm a pro-activist. But then in a, in a setting in Washington, D.C., where I sat uh, at a table uh, at a dinner I was invited to, I sat next to a, a man who um, is a famous author. His name is Jim Wallace. And I asked him, I said, how did you start writing your books? He said, well, I got the best co-writer. And he or she was so good that um, 
I was able to continue my work and, and write this book. And I got a great literary agent, and he told me the name of his co-writer and his literary agent. And I thought, God, maybe I should consider doing it just the way you did it. And that was on a Wednesday night. And then Thursday morning, I went to another meeting in Washington, and I sat next to someone else who was a pretty famous writer. And I asked them, how did you start writing your book? And they told me the exact same thing, gave me the exact two names. I thought, this is too weird. Then I went home, and I looked in my file, uh, you know, looking for something. I ran across a file from the State of the World Forum. And after that speech that I gave, um, the literary agents who had spoken to me, two of them wrote me after that. And I looked up the two names, and one of them was the same name as the Thursday night dinner companion told me and the Thursday morning dinner companion told me. I said, these are too many signs. So I called her, and her name is Gail Ross. She's in Washington, D.C. She's a literary agent. And uh, she said, I heard you speak. I'm so glad you've called me. You have a book in you. I will find you a collaborative writer, the perfect person for you. We're going to get this book out there. And she made me do it. <laughs> so I, I owe a lot to her. And I was, uh, I thought I was incapable. And I'm just saying this for anybody who thinks they can't do it. I thought I was incapable of writing a book. Um, but the truth is, if you have a message, and everyone does, and you want it to go out into the world. And I felt the responsibility, you know, not for whom was the book, but I was carrying so many teachings that I couldn't just hold them for myself. I knew they weren't just for me, that it was my responsibility to, to share them with whoever would listen. That's kind of the audience I had at the very beginning. No, that's a, that's a beautiful, it's a beautiful story. One thing I'm, I'm really interested to know here is I think for many people, it's although it's it's almost impossible not to respect and admire, you know, your journey, your experience, your courage. I think for many people, maybe it it occurs as like impossible or it's unrelatable. I mean, I heard you say you were 29 years old when you completed the training and you had kids, you were married, you know, you had uh, a home this kind of thing. And, and then you, you go and you, you're making speeches in, in you know, international gatherings with world leaders and, and help me understand how a person can, can follow that journey, you know, going from where they are, where everybody wants to make a difference, everybody wants to contribute, but it just seems so unrealistic. Well, it is unrealistic. That's the honest to God truth. It's unrealistic. It's difficult. It's, um, there's no formula. Um, the how is a mystery to me too. Um, and that's I, not, that's not helpful then. <laughs> I know, I know. I, I, I will tell you that how I really, um, made peace with it was when I, when I got to a point three years into the hunger project, which really was the thing that captured my heart and soul, um, after I took the S training, the Hunger Project began a commitment to end world hunger, and it became a worldwide commitment and a very significant organization that I was part of at the very beginning. And uh, three years into that, I thought I was just going to volunteer for a little while, for two or three months, and then, you know, three years later, I was I was all over the world. I was one of the leaders. I I couldn't stop, and I remember coming home from a trip um, abroad and sitting down with my kids. And this is when they were now four, six, and eight, or maybe five. 
seven and nine and sitting down on the floor of our family room with Bill, my husband and my three children. I was just sobbing. And I said to them, I want you to know that I didn't mean to you know, miss the soccer championship and not be there for spring sing or miss the parent teacher conference. But this commitment to end world hunger is just taking me over. And I didn't know that it would take me over the way that it has and that I would become so completely dedicated and committed. And I, um, I just want to let you know, I don't think I can stop. And I thought I could just do it for a while, but I, I can't. This is, I think this is my I think this is my path. I think this is why I'm I was born and I I'm doing it for you in so many ways, but I need your permission to continue. And my daughter, okay, so my kids are sitting on the floor and Bill sitting there. My daughter who's in the middle, her name is Summer. I think she was 7, maybe. She said she said the following. She said, "Mom, if you can end world hunger, we don't want you taking us to the orthodontist. <laughs> Someone else can do that. We're so proud of you, mom. You got through the coolest mom. Everybody wants to know where you just were. We have the coolest things for show and tell. And other kids and my my, my sons, the, the older one and the younger one chipped in. Yeah, other kids, you know, they at spring break, they go to Aspen and Disneyland. We go to Micronesia. <laughs> we have Ethiopians staying in our guest room. We have astronauts at the breakfast table. Mom, you're the coolest don't worry about us. We're fine. And I just, I was sobbing and they, they really gave me their permission. Wow. And what about Bill? They what, also, about, what about your husband? How did he respond? Well, he's the best guy in the entire world. Of course, I've been married to him for 51 years. He just is like a rock and he only wants for me what makes my heart sing. It makes me cry to say it. He just wants that and always has been that way. And he's such a confident, centered, um, whole, healthy human being. He's the healthiest, emotionally, uh, you know, kind of psychologically healthy human being I've ever met. He's totally centered in himself. And that actually made it all possible because he was fine with me doing what was my dharma, you could say. And we he was also very successful financially, so we had a wonderful live-in nanny, and he was such a rock. And also, we were in a collection of families, you know, this wonderful phrase, it takes a village. Such a wonderful collection of families who were involved in the Hunger Project, all of us caring for each other's kids. A whole families have moved in with us and lived with us, in some cases for years at a time. So we have really run our home, and we still run it. There's people staying here right now, like a village, like a like a home for people who are committed to doing great things in the world. And I missed things. That's I just got to say this. I'm I. It was heartbreaking when I missed a plane. For the soccer championships. I'll never forget it. I was heartbroken when I missed a, another connection and couldn't get to my son's performance of Ave Maria in Grace Cathedral. I mean, there were things I missed and I regret that. At the same time, the benefits to my family for the work that I did, they have a safety net all over the world in countries people can't even pronounce. They're comfortable in those countries. All three of my children speak three or four languages. They're, they know they're global citizens. They were by the time they were, you know, 11, 12, and 13. So there they're, they're were huge trade-offs and huge benefits. 
but we stayed the course and um, we communicated. That's really key. We communicated. Uh, we stayed in communication no matter where I was, and we communicated when we couldn't k- keep our word. We apologized and we amazing. went forward. Really amazing. So part of what I'm hearing in what you're sharing is that how you did it, if someone were trying to break this down or, or see what they could pattern their own lives after of what you did. So you, first of all, we're on a path of growth and development. And that was the S training you did. You went yes. through that. And then you went beyond that and put your hand in the air and said, I want to, I want to be a leader in some of these efforts. So there was this effort of leadership in some things, uh, Hunger Project, obviously, other, perhaps other things. Is that, is that accurate? Yes. I, I, I don't, yes. I, I'm, um, let's see, I've, part of this is from, you know, the, the technology around the S training. There's a lot of language that I use uh, and I still draw from, and I know you do too. One of the things that happened for me, I found the power of taking a stand and, Taking a stand is distinct from taking a position. When you take a position, you you generate its opposition. So we creates they, us creates them, right creates left, up creates down, conservative creates progressive, you know, liberal. But when you take a stand, you transcend positionality and you find your, what I would call calling, your reason for being, your why you were born. And I found my stand early in my life. And it was really through the hunger project. And so when you take a stand, things sort of clear up around you. Um, there's a, there's a space that becomes available and then you're invited to take roles in my case, leadership roles that are consistent with your stand and they become a compelling and irresistible opportunity to express your stand. So I didn't seek leadership exactly. I wasn't looking for power or visibility or fame, but I knew what I stood for. I still know what I stand for. And when there's a a leadership position or a a role to play that's a fit for that, then uh, I, I gravitate towards that. And that's a, uh, that's been a life, a life path. I see. And I think that's a key distinction that the leadership was an expression of the stand that you took or the stand that you are and not that leadership was something you sought for the benefits or, you know, the ego, you know, or anything like that. Yes. And I'm, I mean, I have an ego and I love it when somebody acknowledges me or when they ask me, tell me I'm, you know, I'm worthy of being the chairman of their board or something like that. I, I do get caught in those things, but I must say the, total blessing of this distinction of taking a stand frees you from your identity. Because when you take a stand, my my assertion is any stand taker, Martin Luther King was a stand taker, Nelson Mandela was a stand taker, Mother Teresa was a stand taker, you know, people that we all admire, you take a stand for something that actually cannot be accomplished in your own lifetime. So it frees you from having from being able to take any credit because you are actually unlocking something that will probably not get accomplished in a way that you can even see its result. And that detaches you from outcome. And then you're working towards the direction of a, a miracle. 
you know, ending world hunger may happen in my lifetime now, but I didn't really know if it would or it wouldn't. But I know it will happen, and I will have made a contribution to that. When you take a position, you are locked in your point of view, the way you see it. Your point of view becomes very important to you. When you take a stand, you can see all points of view, and they all contribute. Archimedes said, give me a place to stand, and I'll move the world. And you can, and you do. So I, I think people like Gandhi, you know, he didn't say, I want to be a leader. He took a stand. And so around him, things galvanized in a way that he became uh, the leader of the movement. Um, I don't know if I'm communicating, but that's how I see it. So I heard you say when you discovered, right, when you, because what I'm, what I'm wondering is, does, is a stand something somebody discovers or do they define something? They just wake up one day and they, they make a declaration or they write it down? Or how, how, does, how does one, as a practical matter, how does one go about like defining what their stand is and then living from that? Um, well, excellent question. <laughs> Another one of these uh, questions that I can't, you know, when I can't answer a question, I just tell a story. <laughs> but I, I really, I can't tell you how. I know that one of the things that I do and I think every stand taker does, and I, 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 I think you are a man who's taken a stand. Around a stand taker, there's a, what, a, what you know, we call in our, our way of speaking, a clearing, a clearing. That means that the clutter, the petty thoughts, the judgments, the, um, oh, the, is he doing it better than I am, or don't leave me out, or all those petty thoughts that we have about the doubts and fears and insufficiencies and scarcity that we have inside of us clear up around a stand taker. You, um, you become inspired or inspirited to find your stand. So if you just think about Martin Luther King, just think about him for a moment. Or if you, if you remember uh, on January 15th when they play his speeches, I always listen to NPR, um, National Public Radio, and they play his speeches pretty much all day. You just hear his voice, the cadence of his voice, and you sit up straighter. You're inspired. Whatever you're bothered about falls away, and you start to be a better human being. And I say a stand taker creates that kind of a field. They don't go around telling people, you should be a better human being. No. Just thinking about Mahatma Gandhi, reading his words, thinking about, now I worked with Mother Teresa, so I can, so I can tell you what that was like, but I, I think about Jane Goodall, I think about Nelson Mandela, I think about Václav Havel, I think about people that I distinguish as stand takers. They were never doing it for the money. No one gave them their authority. They derived their authority from the stand they took. No one gave Martin Luther King any authority. He became a global phenomenon because he derived his authority from the stand he took. And the same thing with Mahatma Gandhi. He had no real position, not in, in government or anything. He derived his authority from the integrity of the stand that he took. And that creates a field where other people have the space and a clearing, I'll call it. So the answer to your question is yes, yes. You discover it and you take it. It's like you discover it and then you claim it. If you discover it and you don't claim it, it lies fallow. If you try to claim it or force it, it's not authentic. So it's a yes, yes. You Yes, you do discover it 
And yes, you must articulate it, claim it, and live it. So is this something that anyone can do? I believe every single human being on this planet came into life to make a difference and maybe is not aware of that, maybe has given up on that, maybe is not in touch with that. But that's my, I I can't prove that, but that's my assertion. I believe it's available to every single person. And I'll tell you, working with people in resource poor situations, I never call people poor because I don't consider people poor. I consider the resources or the circumstances they live in poor. But um, the resource, the people living in resource poor conditions like Liberia after that war or Mozambique after that war or Ethiopia after that famine or even my beautiful colleagues in the rainforest or the people that I've known um, in India that are often uh, considered untouchables. Each one of those human beings, when given the opportunity, can make an extraordinary difference with their life. And that's really, I think, all they really want. And they don't know they can, so they don't even pursue it. Yeah, that, that, that reminds me of something I recently heard Alice Walker said, that the most common way people give up their power is by not believing they have any. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Amazing. So tell me, back to the book and the the soul of money, why did you call it that? Well, uh, that that title came from my friend Wink Franklin, who uh, used to be the executive vice president and CEO of the uh, Institute of Noetic Sciences, where I was on the board. And he created a workshop uh, and asked me to speak at it. And he said, let's just call it the soul of money because you're so soulful and you can talk about money. I don't know. (laughs) Let's just call it that. And I thought, oh, that's a cool title. And it's sort of a trick title. And then I realized I want to name the book that because uh, nobody thinks of soul and money really in the same sentence. No. I mean, you know, it just they just don't fit because we, we sort of sell our soul for money. And we don't really bring money and soul in, in, in close proximity in our, our own lives. So I thought if I said the soul of money, even though money doesn't have a soul, and I don't believe that it does, we have a soul and we can use money with soul. So it's a little bit of a trick tile, soul of money, to get people intrigued enough to open that book uh, and see whether or not they want to read it and buy it. Um, and I didn't think of it as a trick title so much, but it just sort of worked. When I heard that phrase, it clicked for me. And when I talked to the publisher, it clicked for them. And so there you have That's it. That's great. That's very unusual that the author's title, the, what what effectively is a working title, makes it all the way through to be the the title of the book, but this one was a good fit. That is true. That's great. That's true. So I know you've been sharing messages around this topic of money for many, many years, and even not too long ago had the opportunity to be on Oprah's Super Soul Sunday talking about this. I did. And I understand that she invited you to dinner in her home along with four young women from South Africa who were part of her leadership academy. You had a chance to spend the evening with them, um, helping them navigate the world of money. What did you tell them? Oh, well, oh, my God, I love your questions, Brian. They're so good. Um, Well, first of all, being with Oprah was over the top amazing, like you all, everybody listening knows it would be. She's 10 times more wonderful than you think she is, and you start thinking she's amazing. Um, And when she asked me to stay for dinner, and Sarah Vetter was with me, the two of us went, uh, walked up to her mansion from the Grove where we did the interview together, the four girls from... South Africa walked with us and, and Oprah said, you know, I really want you to talk to them about money because they're, uh, you know, two of them are going on to, I think, law school. They just graduated from college with incredible, you know, 
Phi Beta Kappa and all kinds of awards. Someone else was getting a PhD, going for a PhD at Oxford. Another one was uh, was doing some other amazing um, uh, postgraduate education. And um, she said they will eventually go back to some of the most resource poor places on earth. Their their whole families and community will be waiting for and. Here they are living at my house, Oprah says. They're going to be, everybody's going to have their hand out and, and think that this these young women are going to save them financially. And um, so I need you to talk to them and give them any, way, any wisdom you can about money. So here we are. We're at Oprah's Terrace, okay, overlooking the Pacific Ocean. It's so beautiful. It makes you, you know, weep. Um, and um, we're getting served iced tea by one of the wonderful people that works in her home. And it's Oprah, my friend Sarah, my colleague Sarah, and the four women and, and, and me. And Oprah's telling me now, okay, talk to them. So I thought, what in the world do I have to say to these four amazing young women? And I, you know, kind of interviewed them. What are they, where are they from? And about your family and tell me about your studies. And so that I could get a little sense of who they were. And after that, I, I, I had, I really didn't know what to say to them. And I turned to Oprah and I said, well, you know what, Oprah? I think your story of your life, being born in poverty, being born to a mother who's at the, in, in the beginning of her life didn't want you, getting pregnant yourself when you were 13 years old and having a baby that you then died, um, you know, going from place to place, your life and now being one of the richest women on this planet, your life experience is way more relevant to them than mine. I don't know that I can share with them anything that's as relevant as you sharing with us your story with money. Well, when you invite, you know, Oprah Winfrey to tell a story, she knows how to do it. So she launched into her story and she told the girls and, and myself and Sarah her journey with money. And she'd never told it from that lens before. She's told millions of stories, uh, you know, on television about her life, her sexual abuse, and all the things that happened to her. Terrible, terrible things happened to her, and then and the miracle she created out of it. But she'd never looked at it through the lens of money until my my inquiry, my question, my request. And she shared um, coming out of poverty, being black and poor, and unwanted, uh, and doing, you know anything she could to even find enough self-esteem to take the next step, to take the next breath, to not kill herself, particularly when her or gave birth to her baby at age 14 and it died a day later or two days later, and her mother disowned her at that point. Um, her story uh, from you know rags to riches, which is such a trite phrase, but that's exactly what happened to her, um, was so relevant to their life and so fabulous because what she's done with her wealth is own it. And it didn't happen right away. She, you know, she told beautiful stories about going into a store and seeing two pairs of shoes. This is when her, her salary was already $100,000 and she couldn't even believe it. And she was with a friend and she saw two pairs of shoes and she liked them both and she couldn't decide which to buy. And her friend said, Oprah, you can buy both of them. And she said, I can. <laughs> you know, it was kind of like stories like that. Simple little stories that that were revelatory in her life. And at one point, there was a point where her relatives or people who claimed to be her relatives came to her to ask for money. 
most of them um, from, you know, poor black communities in in Tennessee or in Kentucky or Missouri or Mississippi, places where they claimed to be related to her, whether she knew they were or not. Um, and she didn't know how to deal with it. And they kept coming in droves trying to get her attention. And at one point, after keeping track of who came to her, who she thought was perhaps really related to her, worthy of a gift, she gave a huge amount of money away to her um, the people who told her they were her relatives. And she gave it away to them in a way that she also gave them access to trust a trust officer that she hired and paid for who would help them take that money and actually invest it well and, um, and, and have a, a sustainable life. Not all of them did that. Some of them came back two years later and wanted more, but she said, no, that's it. And that day when she gave that money away, which was millions of dollars, she told us, and this she had never, I think, said this before, but um, this is what I remember from our conversation with her that was so moving to me. She said, that was the day that I owned my wealth for the first time. After I completed my guilt of being a poor black woman who had made so much money that I couldn't really own it. I couldn't feel that I deserved it. Once I had taken care of the people that were my kin and given them a chance to have a, a healthy and productive life, I knew I was done with the guilt and I owned my wealth for the first time. And I realized this wealth is mine. I earned it. And now I'm going to make this world a better place with this money. And that moment for her I was crying, we were all crying when she talked about this, was so significant. And it gave the girls um, and me, and I'm sure probably people hearing this story now, an opportunity to see really what money, especially when you have more money than you need, what it's really for. It really is not yours. It's, it's entrusted to us, yes, to nourish our life in whatever ways we really need it. But then if there's more than we need, the job is to pass it on where we'll do the most uh, for the world. And that really, it isn't really ours, even if we earn it. We need to own it and then let it go. And so it was a beautiful um, answer to her question to me, which I bounced back to her, and she answered in ways I never could have for those girls. Wow. It sounds like maybe Oprah has a book about money that's co-authored by Lynn Twist in the future. <laughs> oh, wouldn't that be, be fun? Oh my God. So one thing I'd like to ask you is about some of the misconceptions that exist for people around money. I've heard you talk about the difference between referring to a person as a poor person or a rich person, you know, and even in this conversation, you referenced what we're really talking about is their circumstances. It's not the person. So when we use these labels, mm -hmm. um, we're doing something. Will you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest problems in the economic um, dialogue or narrative that we all participate in and what I would call the consumer culture or the money culture that devalues human life and exalts money. And um, we actually refer to people now, we used to call them citizens, that label is very honorable. Uh, we now call ourselves consumers, consumers. And that word is an ugly word for a human being. It means he or she who takes, depletes, 
diminishes or destroys. And that's the devolution of humanity's view of itself compared to this thing called money. We put money way, way, way higher than ourselves. We will kill for money. We'll steal for money. We'll hurt for money. We won't speak to a relative for years over a money issue, which says money's more important than that human being or that relationship. And this whole labeling that we do, and I'll go back to the way you asked this question, you know, I did used to call people poor. I I, I called people poor. I call them poor people. But when you think about that label and what that does to a human being, what that says about a human being, people aren't poor. In fact, when you actually get to know people that I used to call poor, people in, you know, post-war situations or people in places where there's not enough food or water, they are so resilient. They are so creative. They have to be. They are super intelligent or they, they wouldn't be alive anymore. Um, they may not know how to read or write, but they're, they have to be creative and they have to be unbelievably courageous to live through every single day more courage than most of us will ever need in our lifetime. Um, so I refrain from those labels. I even think lower class, middle class, all of those things are so unfortunate, and I try to not use them. I try to call people human beings. Yeah, this is a bit of a term in psychology, the Pygmalion effect, when somebody is uh, labeled something, and then it's like they prove the truth of that label. Yes. Right? What you're saying, and and in this, you know, this was something that I had never considered before I read your book, and I heard you talk about this, but you've talked about something... um, that happens with people who have money. And here you talked about the tyranny, you know, of, of the rich, this, this kind of thing, uh, a poverty of the spirit. Will you say a little more about that? Well, I, I, I don't um, know exactly how to say this in a way that, that it doesn't apply to all people of wealth. I just want to make sure I say that uh, because I know I'm talking to you and you're such a special human being yourself. And you've navigated a, a, a family of wealth with, with incredible grace. The difficulty is how to raise children in that situation in a way that they're normal and not um, entitled. Uh, the difficulty is how to um, actually show up as a full, complete human being with with problems and, and, and wishes and dreams and disappointments. And, um, and because wealth can often ease life so much that people of great wealth often don't have to rub up against what I call the sandpaper of life. They can bypass some of the tough, um, the tough things that forge and help us be better people. What are some examples of that, by the way, of the sandpaper of life? What do, what do you mean? Well, Suppose you're in a crowded, um, a, a, a crowded airport, and you, um, and you know there's a, a, a snowstorm somewhere, and everybody is stranded. It seems like it's a great equalizer, but you know it's really not because there's this lounge over here, and then there's this hotel in the airport that's more too expensive for most people, but people with money get to just you know go get a nice room and a massage. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I get it. And and yeah, as someone who has, has grown up in a family of, of wealth and, and who has many friends who are in uh, established families, one of the things I see is that challenge of, 
you know, how to not only steward the wealth responsibly, but figure out what's my identity within it, what's my contribution. My question for you then is if this is if a situation that people of of wealth or privilege is is there's a lot of comfort, a lot of opportunity for many people. Um, how can we avoid that kind of trap, so to speak? Um, well, gosh, uh, it's um, in in the the whole act of raising children. I I can say a few things about that. I can also say that one of the one of the things that I've learned, this is not the answer to your question, but I'll just say it. In working with many families of wealth, which is the great gift I have of having written the book, The Soul of Money, it draws sometimes uh, families of great wealth to come to me f- with their challenges. I've learned that inside uh, the dark uh, hallways of, of many of those families, bulimia, anorexia, addiction, abandonment issues are so intense because I think people think that they don't deserve the life they've been given, and so they make themselves wrong. They, they're empty. Um, now, not all people are like this, of course, but um, it's, it's how we gain our confidence is by breakdowns and breakthroughs. <laughs> you know, we really do. That's how we, you know, when you're building muscles, I've never been a weightlifter, but the weightlifter people tell me or whenever I was in any kind of a fitness program, you got to break the muscle down and then you build it back up again. That's how you grow your strength. The same thing is true with a life. You need to allow people to, people need to have the, the gift of failure and then pick themselves up from failure and out of that, become stronger and confident that they can they can they're resilient enough to get through it allowing people to face the music of life maybe giving them the support they need to get through it but not doing it for them is one you know tenet i would say that i think we all know but i'll just say it out loud another tenet is recognizing that the money if you have gotten it um, even if you've earned it, but in, in the case that we're talking about, if you've inherited it, doesn't really belong to you. It is flowing through your life, and yeah, that flow I, is something you are entrusted with, and how you use it determines the character of your life, determines the depth of your integrity. I love that. I think it's such a wonderful perspective, and I just had the opportunity last week to spend time with our friend Charles Eisenstein and heard him share this view that even if we have earned the money, what allowed us to earn the money, the gifts and the strengths oh, and the talents like- that you know enabled us in whatever resources and other people helped us, that ultimately at its essence, that can all be viewed as a gift and probably rightly so. Yes, and if, if we view it as a gift, because it is, I, I believe, then we can live in gratitude and gratefulness. And that is the source of prosperity. That's the source of prosperity, not more money or more stuff. Being grateful, recognizing the gratefulness of one's life, even if you have a pittance, is the source of true prosperity and true fulfillment. So you mentioned Pachamama. And uh, I know from having journeyed with you to the rainforest as part of the Pachamama Alliance a little bit about your work there. And um, will you share with me a bit about what the Pachamama Alliance is and what you do? 
Well, the Pachamama Alliance is an alliance between the indigenous people of the sacred headwaters of the uh, Amazon rainforest and conscious, committed people in the modern world like you and probably all the people listening here and, and myself for the sustainability of life. So an alliance between indigenous people and modern world people for the sustainability of life. The specific location where the indigenous people who founded, co-founded the Pachamama Alliance with my husband Bill and John Perkins and I live, happen to live, and it's not a coincidence, in the sacred headwaters region of the Amazon rainforest, the most biodiverse ecosystem on this planet and the most critical ecosystem on this planet. Not even knowing that the way I just said it, they know that they're, they're, they are the custodians of the um, source of life. And so they are fiercely and unyieldingly committed to preserving it. And those of us who are part of the Pachamama lines from the modern world are their partners in doing that, not only for themselves, but for the sustainability of life. But also they are so wise and so um, intentional that they really know that the threats to those forests and to all uh, ecosystems and all life is not oil companies per se, mining companies per se, although those are very dangerous predators, but the way we view ourselves and this world, which is they call the dream of the modern world or the trance of the modern world, the trance that's rooted in consumption, acquisition, more, 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 more of everything, particularly money, but possessions and cars and roads and companies and the square feet in our houses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, until, you know, more, 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 more of anything. So this, this beautiful um, uh, organization, or I really call it like an energy, a movement, an organism, is both the, to preserve the sacred headwaters of the Amazon, the source of life, and to change the, the dream of the modern world or transform, uh, awaken us from the trance um, to a new dream, a, an environmentally sustainable, spiritually fulfilling, socially just human presence on this planet, which is I, as I said before, is a, is a stand that I, I've taken and I know you have too. And that phrase, an environmentally sustainable, spiritually fulfilling, socially just human presence on this planet is what we call the new dream for humanity. And people can learn more about this work at Pachamama.org. Is that right? They can. They can. And anyone who's interested in this, they can participate in one of these transformational workshops. They can go to the rainforest. Is that right? Yes, we take people to the rainforest. We also, um, I forgot to say, we have a wonderful program called The Awakener, which we do inside of companies. And it's two hours long and it's really powerful. It's a condensed version of the Awakening the Dreamer program. And it's every company on earth should take it. Uh, it's just, it's only two hours long and it really taps people into who they are. And then we do trips to the rainforest, uh, we call them journeys. And they're um, anywhere from six days long to two weeks long. And they're a deep dive into the Amazon, the beauty, majesty, and you know, profound uh, power of the natural world and the indigenous people who are its natural custodians. And also a real deep understanding of the work of Pachamama herself. Yeah, that's amazing. Really amazing. Well, and, and the last thing that I'll ask on, on the topic of the Pachamama Alliance is just um, from reading your book and, and talking with you, I understand that you really uh, were inspired to do this because of a dream you had, like a night dream, kind of dream after you'd fallen asleep, not 
just like a dream of your you know heart or something. Um, is that is that the case? And if so, will you share a little bit about that? Uh, yes, I will. Well, I actually had a very very profound vision in a shamanic ceremony in Guatemala with uh, 12 people laying uh, on the ground around a, a large fire on the top of a mountain with my friend John Perkins and a shaman named Roberto Pose, a Mayan shaman in Guatemala. And I was there really to help out with a friend who had a project there. And um, we ended up through a series of circumstances with this Mayan shaman doing a ceremony. And ceremony often in- includes uh, plant medicines, but this ceremony did not. It was just this beautiful shaman named Roberto Pose, his drum and his voice. And he uh, chanted, told us to lie down around the fire with our feet towards the fire like a big wagon wheel. He chanted and whistled and sang and chanted and whistled and sang and, and was drumming. And during this um, journey, it was called, and it was in the middle of the night, it was at midnight, I, I, uh, I felt my right arm turn into some sort of strange, large, amazing wing. And I had my eyes closed, but this was like, I I thought maybe I must be dreaming. And then my left arm started to shake and quiver. And it seemed to be turning into this giant wing. And then before I knew it, this giant beak was growing on my face. And then I just had to fly. I couldn't have laid there for one more second. These huge wings on either my right and my left side on both sides of my body just had to extend. And I flew above the campfire, looked down at the campfire and saw myself lying there, heard the shaman's voice and the whistling and the drum as, as clear as, as, as it could possibly be. And I began to fly up into the night sky and there were zillions of stars. And I remember having this experience of absolute bliss as I flew in kind of slow motion as this large, gigantic bird. And then it started to dawn, and I looked down and saw a vast, unending forest of green below me. It just went forever and ever, and it was spectacular and beautiful. And I looked down through the trees, and I could see all the way to the forest floor. I had very, very acute vision. And then at a certain point, these disembodied faces of men with orange geometric face paint and yellow, red, and black feather crowns on their heads started to float up from the forest floor through the trees to me, the bird, and call to the bird in a strange tongue. And that happened over and over and over again. And it was hypnotic, mesmerizing, completely, you know, magical, actually. As I was flying over the forest in slow motion, these faces kept appearing, coming through the trees and calling to the bird. And then at a certain point, there was a loud drumbeat. I opened my eyes. I realized, oh my God, I'm a human being. I don't have wings. I don't have a beak. I sat up and everybody around the circle, you were, you could see from their face, they were, you know, discombobulated and something had happened for everybody. And so the shaman asked us to share what had happened for us. And we ran around the circle and everybody had become an animal. And when it was my turn, I shared what I've just shared with you. And then it went all the way around the circle to my friend, John. And John had a very, very similar vision to mine. So the shaman then completed the ritual, dismissed everyone but John and I. And then John and the shaman and I had a conversation that I will never forget because John and the shaman said, Lynn, this was not a normal vision. This is a communication. Someone is calling for you to come to them. And John said, they're calling me too. And I know who they are and where they are. And the shaman said, 
You must go to them. And John said, well, I've just recently been in the Ecuadorian Amazon with the Shuar people and an Achuar um, hunting party came into our camp and told us that they were going to start seeking contact after having no contact for thousands of years from the outs- with the outside world because they'd seen in their dreams and visions that contact was inevitable, so they were going to initiate it before it came to them in ways they couldn't control. And John said, those faces you saw, those are the Achuar leaders. They're calling for us to come to them. And I just totally dismissed it. I couldn't buy it. It was too weird for me. And I thought, this is kind of interesting, but I can't, I just can't wrap my mind around this. And I went on to Africa where I was going to a hunger project board of directors meeting in Accra, Ghana. And I go to this meeting in Accra, Ghana, in a hotel. I'm sitting in a conference room with five men and three women, all Ghanaian, all with beautiful, beautiful blue-black skin, very beautiful Ghanaian people. And we're having this conversation. It's a board meeting. And the men start having orange geometric face paint appearing on their faces. Here's Here I'm in Africa, in Ghana. And I no one said anything. And I thought, oh my God, I'm having a hallucination. I just excused myself and went to the ladies' room and tried to get myself together because I was very shaken by it. And then I came back and everybody was normal. They were still talking. Conversation continued. And then it happened again. And I burst into tears and told everybody I had to go back to the United States, that I was ill, that I, uh, that I was confused, too many time zones, too many countries, too many too much travel. And what did you think was happening? Well, I thought I was going crazy. I thought I was insane. I thought I I really did believe that I was ill, uh, that I was having a hallucination from the strange thing that happened to me in Guatemala, and that it was that I needed to rest. And so I packed my bag and went straight to the airport and uh, tried everything I could to fly home as fast as I could. And I, I flew from Accra, Ghana to Frankfurt, and the faces, when I o- opened or closed my eyes, the faces kept coming towards me. That I couldn't stop seeing them. And then I flew from Frankfurt to New York and then New York to San Francisco, and all the way, whether I was awake or, awake or asleep, the faces just kept coming. So when I got home, I, I was desperate to talk to John Perkins, telling him, you know, whatever this thing is that happened in Guatemala, I'll go. I'll go. I'll go wherever these people are just to get this to stop. And John was in the Amazon, so I couldn't reach him. This is in 1994. There were no cell phones or internet. And when he came home, which was two weeks later, I finally reached him. And he had just been in Ecuador, in the Amazon, with the Achuar. And he he confirmed, yes, they're waiting for you and me, and they want us to bring 10 more people, 12 of us all together for first encounter. And I immediately invited Bill, my husband, who I'd been complaining about these hallucinations, but he just thought I was tired. And I did too. Um, and then uh, we put our group together and we went down and had our first encounter. Uh, we went down, as you have done, down to flew to Quito, then through the Valley of the Volcanoes, then over the eastern side of the Andes, down the Pastaza River Canyon, and flew into Achuar territory, the roadless, pristine, most beautiful rainforest you'll ever see landed by a river, and um, once we were all there, they came out of the forest with their orange geometric face paint, their yellow, red, and black feather crowns and spears, and put us in canoes and took us down uh, this beautiful, beautiful river to a place um, where they were building an eco-lodge, which is now called Kapawi. And um, we camped there 
uh, and they told us we, they were building a lodge with their friend Danielle, who who was our guide for all of this, and you've met him, so that they could host modern world people and begin to have contact with the modern world on their terms, in their territory, in ways that they could control. And in that first encounter, um, we we had the life changing experience that they asked for our help, and Pachamama Lines was born out of that a trip, out of that encounter, out of that. Uh, out of those conversations with that uh, small handful of indigenous men who knew it was time to make contact with the modern world on their own terms. That's amazing. Why do you think they chose you? How did they even know who you were? Why? <laughs> I imagine you've given that thought. Like, why you? Well, I think the best answer to that is I don't know. They never say and they won't say that they chose us. So I don't know if they chose us or they put out the call and we heard it. Yeah. Um, some of them, Domingo Pius, who's a wonderful man, says that he dreamed me to him, or some of them say that we dreamed you here. But because they're a dream culture and that's the way they talk, they may have also been saying, we dream everyone who comes to us here. Yeah. We, you know, I believe that that they dreamed you there, Brian and Heather Dawn there. I, I really think they do dream the people there, but it's also that you heard them. In other words, they put out a call. Maybe the call was to everybody and I heard it. Maybe the call was to me. I can't, I don't know. And they won't say, but I think they put out a call and they're still putting out a call. In fact, that call is from the spirit of life. And, and you and I and probably many of the people who are listening to, to this, uh, this, our voices right now, are hearing that call through this program. That's possible. That's what our job is, really. Those of us who've heard the call is to pass it on to other people and have them wake up, too. And so the call, I don't think, was just to me, but I was lucky enough to receive it and hear it and be in a circumstances where I could actually respond. And now it's my job, and I know it's your job, and I know you take this seriously to pass that call on to as many people as you possibly can. Yeah, and for me, you know, I know that I'm not unique in, you know, feeling this desire to connect with the earth, to connect with nature. Uh, I think many people feel that, and I think many people want to transform our relationship with this consumer culture, and they want, they're looking for a better, more fulfilling way to live. Uh, but for many of us, I think the closest we come is maybe we buy a hybrid and we shop at Whole Foods and maybe we wear natural fibers, but we're always at risk perhaps of being a tree-hugging hippie, you know. And yet the UN's definition of sustainability is so practical, right? Of The UN defining it as sustainable development is meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. Like... It's a very yes. pragmatic statement, yet there's almost a stigma, I think, in our culture somewhat. So kind of where I'm going with this is between people's desire to connect more fully or honor the call that they might be hearing, what advice would you give them? Like, how can they honor that? How can they follow it? Well, um, that's, that's one of the functions that Pachamama performs, Pachamama Alliance. We have... Um, the courses that we and transformational education programs that we provide don't tell you what to do, but tell you who to be and then what 
to do shows up from that beingness, mm-hmm. if I can put it that way. And that's really a beautiful way to live. And it's it frees you from the pettiness that yeah. we often get trapped in doing stuff just for me, me, me. So I I consider it all a gift, a freedom, an opportunity for growth and development that isn't hard. There's not sacrifice in it, actually. It's the opposite. We become free. Amazing. Beautiful, beautiful perspective. Okay. Okay. So shifting gears, these I have designed to be short answer. <laughs> so of course, okay. Okay. I'll, I'll you're, do my you're best. welcome <laughs> to answer as long as you want, but here's the questions. So the lightning round, number one, okay. are you a napper? Yes. Number two, what do you wish you were better at? Writing. <laughs> number and technology. Okay. Number three, if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? You are enough. I love it. I love it. What book other than your own have you gifted most often? Um, well, recently... Um, the mag- Into the Magic Shop. Into the Magic Shop. I don't know this book. What, tell me about it. I, uh, Into, Into the Magic Shop by Jim Doty, Dr. Jim Doty. It's about his life, but it's a very profound book, and I loved every page. Beautiful. I will definitely check that out on Amazon. Okay, you travel a ton. What's one travel hack, something you do or maybe something you've own, you own that makes your travel less painful and or more enjoyable? Um, uh, like a technique or a, what did yeah. you say? Hack? Yeah, like a travel, just, like something you do or, or a possession, something you bring along that makes it easier, you know, more enjoyable, less painful. Um, I always set, when I get on a plane, I set my watch for the time of where I'm going and I never think about the time where I left from again. I don't measure time zone. I don't do that. I just be where I am. Um, and I, when I arrive, I set up wherever I'm staying, if it's someone's home or in a hotel, I set up a little altar for meditation with my special objects. So that's like my home, it becomes my home. And I set up my, the things in my bathroom, my cosmetics in a particular way, always exactly the same. And that makes me feel like I'm at home no matter where I am. What's one thing you started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Started or stopped doing? I, um, I, oh, oh, good. I, I have, um, let's see, I stopped drinking coffee and um, I mostly don't have sugar and I drink lots and lots and lots and lots of water and I do yoga every single day and I meditate every you. single day. How long have you been on that program <laughs> of all those? No coffee, no shirt, like low uh, sugar, well, like I, all that. Um, well, I had a, a, a heart incident in November. I mean, I had a heart incident last year, and then I had a little procedure in November, not non-invasive. It's called a, a catheter ablation, not not surgery, but a heart thing, where they went into my heart and did a little thing. Um, and it scared me. It scary. And um, so I, I have a, um, a beautiful, beautiful Chinese medical doctor who said you need to drink at least half your weight in water and fluid ounces every single day and i do that now 
And I've always done yoga every day and I've always meditated. So that's not new, but I meditate longer and I do more yoga. And then stopping um, coffee was her recommendation, my Chinese medical doctor. She said, too much acid. It's not the caffeine, it's the acid. And so I stopped. And I can have a cup like once a month, but it won't kill me, but not good for my heart. Yeah, and not every day. What kind of yoga do you do? Uh, well, I do my own version. And it's really simple. It's the salute to the sun. There's many versions of Linyasa. that. Linyasa? But... <laughs> Linyasa. Yes. That's it. My own little. I love version. it. Yeah, the thing that I like. <laughs> cool. And it actually was uh, my next question was leading into mindfulness. I, I I wondered if you have a mindfulness practice that you observe, and and what's if so, what is it? Where did you learn it? That kind of thing. What does it do for you? Anything about that? Um, well, one of the the things that I'll oh this is too long. I'll, I won't do that whole thing. Um, uh, mindfulness is cl clearly part of my practice, has always been or for many, many years, and now even more so. And I read from uh, several different books every morning quite early, and then I meditate on what I've read. Are they the, the same books through the years, or do you alternate? Yeah, well, I, I change all the time. Sometimes Brother David, sometimes um, I've done The Course in Miracles. I'm right now um, reading something by um, Deepak Chopra. So something, a spiritual book mm -hmm. of some kind. And I usually read passages for two or three every day, and then I meditate. Uh, I have incense, and I do a whole little thing. You know, I make a little little special moment for myself, and that's really important to me every day. And this is whether you're home, whether you're traveling, it's every day regardless. Yeah, every day. I don't always have the, med the uh, what do you call it, um, incense with me, but I have all my other little things. Are you a morning, are you a morning person? I am a super morning person, and I like to go to bed early at night. Oh, you probably live longer that way. <laughs> That's I great. I hope so. Okay, I've got a few book-specific questions and then a few kind of lightning round sure. questions. Uh, I'm interested to know how you, like what process you followed to actually get your manuscript done. I know for many people, the act of writing, uh, many people, myself included, <laughs> the act of writing is painful. It's arduous, you know, it takes a lot of mental effort, a lot of self-discipline, stick-to-itiveness. But for you, what was that like? You know, once you heeded the call, you know, you, you made the commitment that you were going to write the book, um, how did you actually go from this intention to a finished manuscript? Well, um, I am a very social character, so I'm not a solitary producer. I do everything in in collaboration with others, and uh, the book is is was done that way as well. Um, I shared with you the the story about uh, a literary agent who contacted me, who had been referred to, who had who had been named several times before. You know the kind of miracle of finding Gail Ross, the literary agent, and then she gave me a list of collaborative writers. They're not ghost writers because you they're not invisible. You put their name on the book too. Uh, collaborative writers that she thought would be good for me. And um, when I heard Teresa Barker say hello when I called her, I don't think she had to say more than hello, and I knew she was the right person for me. Teresa Barker is a collaborative writer who's done many, many books with many people who are, you know, who think they're too busy to write, or whether they are or they're not, they think they're too busy to write, or they're um, sort of in the pro-activist or activist category, uh, and they and they can't seem to stop and be quiet enough to write. And that, I'm definitely in that category. So 
the stories produce the teachings. The teachings produce the stories. Um, it was sort of like our interview here. Um, and, um, and she recorded it all and transcribed it all. And then she had the skill and the capability of organizing it. And we, she helped us do a really good job with the proposal. Teresa had done hundreds of proposals, so she, she knew she, what she was doing. And then Gail took it to the publishers. And we had, we had 17 publishers ask for a per personal meeting. We were very, very lucky and went to New York. And I, I remember seeing the publisher thing was so scary for me. Oh, my God. And the first, um, the first meeting I went to, I think it was with Bantam. And there were, I thought there would be one person. So I was there with Teresa, my collaborative writer, and Gail Ross, this very seasoned literary agent who knew the game very well. And then me, who knew nothing and was scared to death. And we walked into the Bantam. Um, and there were like, there were 10 people in the conference room. 10 people. I thought, are they here to meet me? I can't even believe it. There was marketing people and, and cover people and editors and the editor-in-chief. And it was like so scary. And they interviewed me like, I, they interrogated me. It wasn't an interview. It was terrifying. The first day, I think we saw six publishers, and each publisher said, this should be a how-to book. You know, the books that really sell, or the, the, the books that are on the front table of the bookstores are, you know, three steps to financial freedom and five steps to prosperity. And can you turn this into a self-help book? Because that's what really sells. And I started by the end of the day thinking, my God, I guess I better do that. And then I went to see my son my, for dinner. And my son is a puppeteer, if you can imagine that. He is a puppeteer, a beautiful, amazing puppeteer. He's a magic person. And he said, Mom, don't become what they want you to become. You tell your story. And if they don't want it, let them go. You know, he, because he had done, you know, he had tried, Disney had tried to compromise him and Harry Potter people. And he's a very pure artist. And he said, Mom, you've got a message that nobody's had before. Stay with it. Don't try to re redesign it for the publishers. And I, I was just a wreck. And so the next morning, the first meeting I had, or the second meeting, I, I went to W.W. Norton, which is my publisher, and the man who was in the meeting, there were, there were still another big group of people, looked at me and he said, this is an idea book. Don't let anybody tell you it's a wow. self-help book. This is an idea book, and it's original thinking, and we want this book. And I burst into tears. <laughs> And, you know, he got it. And uh, I'll never forget this guy. He's such a great guy. He's the editor-in-chief of Norton. And my literary agent said, no, 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 no. Don't, don't, you, don't you respond. You know, we have, to, we have, you know, 12 more publishers to go to. But I knew I would go with Norton. And they didn't do the highest bid or anything. I just knew. No, it's beautiful. Well, and, and I know that some of these things can seem daunting for somebody who's just starting out, you know, talk about a publicist and talk about an agent and writing a book proposal and visiting, you know, making the decision to self-publish or go with a traditional publisher like all this. What advice do you have for people who are working to get their first book done? Well, here's the thing. I don't know about self-publishing and I don't know about marketing and I don't know about, you know, driving your book 
up to number one on Amazon. I, I, I had some very good luck with things like that, but I didn't cause that to happen. So I don't know if I had, have any advice about that. What I do have advice about is tell your story with authentic um, love and care. And that's that'll be the best book you can do. And don't um, try to write for um, everybody in the world or everybody else. Write it for yourself first. I just know for me, what was key was that that moment with my son where I let go of trying to do a book for the publishers. And when I met uh, an editor who said, you know, he really got it, that I had a, a unique message and he, he wanted to publish it. That was when I was really being myself. And um, who you are is what you write. We write who we are. We don't write what we know. We don't write where we've been. Those are just the stories we can tell. But we really write who we are. And if you can stay true to who you are, your book will make a difference to you and hopefully to other people. Yeah, that's, that's really beautiful. So say somebody now is in process. They're in, they're in the tunnel. <laughs> they're in the belly of the snake, so to speak. I know some of the years-long endeavors. What advice do you have for somebody who's in it? They're in the muck. I once heard Jack's uh, manager and colleague, Patty Aubrey, refer to the book writing process as the Prozac experience. Oh, really? <laughs> right? and, and, and so for somebody who's in the thick of that, who's maybe got a little bit of ambiguity, wants to give up, what, what do you say to that person? I would share that I gave up over and over and over again, and then I got back on the horse, as they say. I got a little book that most people have heard of, and if, if people haven't, I recommend it. It's called Writing is Rewriting. And it's a little skinny book, and it just tells you it's okay to write something absolutely terrible that you hate, and then rewrite it. It's better to write than not write. And you can always rewrite. In fact, all writing is rewriting. I think you get back in touch with what you stand for, which is what happened for me. I, I am going towards the answer to your question. Yep. If, you're, if, you, if you're clear about what you stand for in the book will serve what you stand for rather than you're standing for writing a book, um, which is really a goal or a, a to-do or a giant task. But in my case, I was standing for creating peace and freedom in people's relationship with money. And I knew that a book would make a difference in fulfilling that stand. And, um, and so the book was useful for me to write and hopefully for people to read. So when you get stuck in the details, in the story, in the, in the muck, in the mud, in the, in the difficulty, in the procrastination, in the I don't know why I'm doing mm -hmm. this thing, if you can get back in touch with what you stand for, what your life is really about, and see if writing a book is 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 a is a asset for that, and I know yeah. that it is, so that will be the answer. Will Beautiful. be yes. Um, it'll free you uh, to get in the flow again. I love it. Awesome. Okay, so if people want to learn more from you or they want to connect with you, what should they do? Well, I have a website called uh, thesoulofmoney.org, and also you can go to lintwist.com, and that on both of those websites, they lead you to the same place. There's information about the Soul of Money Institute, my book, and the courses we offer online and in, in person and coaching and 
all the things I've talked about. And then um, it also uh, will lead you to Pachamama Alliance, but you can go straight to Pachamama.org and that will lead you to the symposium that I talked about and the Awakener and the Game Changer Intensive and Trips to the Amazon. And then the third area, and you could, this all, my website will lead you to all of the above, but is the Nobel Women's Initiative. And that's uh, NobelWomensInitiative.org. And those are sort of the three areas of work in my life. And um, and that's where you can learn a lot about me. It, really on my website, there's a lot of stuff. Beautiful. And all of that will be in the show notes as well. So people can get there by, they can follow the link in that. And uh, okay, so my last question, I'm just, I debated whether to ask this, but I'm so curious. What's one thing you wish every American knew? Um, let's see. Every American yes. in particular. Um, that this country is a function of its citizens, not its leadership. And um, we, when we stand for our own uh, citizenship and nation with our heart and soul, anything and everything is possible. Beautiful. Lynn, thank you so much for spending two hours, uh, more than two hours, getting ready for this and being on the on this uh, call with me. I do want to let you know that I've made a loan through 100% of Humanity through my foundation and Kiva.org on your behalf to a woman named Hachina in India. She's actually in West Bengal to help her expand her grocery business as a small way of saying thank you. Oh, I so love that. Thank you very much. Oh. Thank you so much, Brian. I love that, and well, I, love I love you. I love you. I feel <laughs> very privileged to, to know you and to have you as a friend. Thank you so much, Brian. 